do this morning, asking you, Lord, to reveal more of your truth to us, not only for the sake of our understanding, but for the sake of our application. Lord, strengthen us to apply the truth to our lives, to recognize that we're not here for academic purposes, but we're here for the purposes of the kingdom of God, and pray that we'll be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, I ask you to bless each and every individual here, meet each need represented, and guide our understanding. We're grateful to you for the great provision you make for us every day. We're thankful for the rain and the snow which is falling. We do pray, those, though, for those who have suffered from the flooding, particularly, Lord, uh, your people. We pray that you'll minister to their need this morning. We commit ourselves to you for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 4. I'd like to read the first eight verses again. We started out last week, well, we ended up last week reading that passage and talking a little bit about it. Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. We began this passage towards the end of uh, class last week, and we noted that we have here a, the account of the birth of two sons. We believe they're the first two children to be born uh, to Adam and Eve, but certainly we know that in the intervening time, as these two young men are growing up, other children are being born, simply because of the natural relationship uh, that would develop. And the fact that, obviously, uh, being as near perfect as they were in the very slow state of decay, Adam and Eve would have been very fruitful. And probably Eve would have given birth every two to four years at a minimum. And as a result, uh, as these young men are growing up, brothers and sisters are being born all along. Uh, later on, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the fact that some have had the question, where did Cain get his wife? And they postulate, well, you know, there was this other somewhat human race that was evolving parallel, and, and he found a, a mate from amongst this sort of uh, primate race of beings, which is, of course, totally non-biblical. There's no problem with his getting his mate because obviously uh, it would be one of his sisters. And at that day, it wasn't a problem because the gene pool hadn't been so uh, mangled as it is today so that such close relationship would not be a problem. We noted that the condition of wildness would have come, I believe, after the fall and as a result of the fall, and that the animals would have been domesticated from the very, very beginning of time uh, of human existence. And that's why where it says that Abel was a keeper of flocks and Cain was a grower of crops in the ground, that domesticated plants and animals have been known by the human race from the very beginning. 
and the anthropological picture of things that man slowly learned how to do this over eons of time is totally, is totally not only hypothetical, it's erroneous and has nothing to do with reality of what really transpired. And that what evidence we do have of what seems to be an evolution is actually a devolution. And, and what you're looking at is the decay of the human race and the decline of the human race and, and human beings actually becoming less technologically advanced and going off into caves and being isolated groups. And there are actually evidences to show that if you take a particular child from the time he or she is very small and as soon as that child is old enough to start eating hard food, you start feeding that child relatively tough meat, let's say, meat that requires a great deal of chewing and, and grain that has not been cooked or whatever, that they will begin to develop very heavy muscles in the head which can actually produce a crown crest uh, for the muscles to hang on to and actually produce extra large and powerful jaws to give sort of a, a, a pre-homo sapien look to the skull. And they've come up with, I mean, there are actually people living today who have skulls that look like what some call to be pre-homo sapien creatures. Uh, and, and so these evidences do not indicate human evolution and are actually evidences of what man can be in the variety of his genetic variation. It seems, as we look at this passage now, that God had instructed Adam and Eve concerning the necessity of a blood sacrifice, of an atonement, of a covering for their sin. And this seems to be at the root of why there is an offering being made at all. I mean, we haven't run across anything where it says, and God said, thou must make an offering. So obviously, God taught that to Adam and Eve as a result of their sin, maybe in connection with his first clothing of them with skins. We don't know. We can speculate about that. But they, in turn, taught their sons so that Cain and Abel knew that a sacrifice had to be made. Now, one day the Redeemer would come, and that we saw already was promised in Genesis 3.15. And his blood would be shed once for all, but in the meantime, animal sacrifices would have to be made to remind them of the seriousness of sin. Now, there are those within the, quote, Christian community who don't like what they call bloody Christianity. You know, the evangelical version where you've got to talk about the blood of Christ and there's a fountain filled with blood, you know. All of these ideas are, are repugnant to, to some people. And they do not recognize the fact that so heinous is sin that it requires this kind of sacrifice. And I don't think it was any fun for people to kill a lamb and burn it on an altar. But that death and that shedding of blood and that burning of the animal was a constant reminder, reminder of the fact that sin is not a game. Sin is serious. Sin is deadly. Sin will destroy. And it's a constant reminder of that throughout the Old Testament period. Certainly they taught their children of these truths. Not just Cain and Abel, but all the other children that were coming along were taught the truth of the blood sacrifice. I think what happened was Cain, when we come to this account that we read here this morning, Cain got to the place where he was tired of having to obtain from his brother a lamb for the sacrifice, or whatever the animal was. His sacrifice, I think, and it's demonstrated by what we read here, was made out of duty. He did it because that was what he was taught he was supposed to do, not because out of a heart of faith and hope he made this sacrifice for the redemption of his own sin. I think it was easy, therefore, for him to decide to offer the fruit of his own labor rather than the sacrifice that God had required. Now, some, try, some commentators try to make this out to be simply a, an offering that was being made, and there was really nothing wrong with offering the fruit of the ground any more than the animal. It was the hard attitude. Well, we're going to see it's a hard attitude, all right. 
but, but I, there's absolutely no precedent here or anything to indicate that they had been taught about giving offerings other than a blood sacrifice yet. That will come later when we have the wave offering and the grain offering and the drink offering and all these other things. Uh, that, that comes as Israel begins to become a people uh, serving God under the Mosaic Covenant. So I think this passage is dealing specifically with a blood offering and the requirement of that blood offering for atonement. Now, in the third verse, as we read, it says, And so he came about in the course of time, so it came about in the course of time, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. This isn't the first time he made an offering. But it seems to be the first time he comes with a fruit offering, an offering of whatever he was growing, to give that to the Lord. To present a sacrifice on his own terms rather than, than on God's terms. Now, God made it very plain that he was willing to accept and that he did accept Abel's sacrifice at this time. But not Cain's. Now, how did he do that? How did God make it clear that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not? Well, it's possible that that came about over the course of time, and as Cain witnessed the life of Abel, the joy and the fruitfulness of, of Abel's existence, and he compared to, him, to himself the hard work and the, and the, and the uh, depressed spirit that he had all the time, it may have been that that's how God spoke to him. But we have adequate evidence, I think, as you read from verse 6 all the way down through verse 15, it seems that there's a conversation going on here between God and Cain. So it's not at all unlikely that God spoke directly to Cain. Now the question that we want to look at here is uh, point four on your outline, number four there. Why is it that God rejected Cain's sacrifice? After all, he was bringing a sacrifice of what he had produced. And it seemed that Abel was bringing a sacrifice of what he had produced. So what was really wrong with what Cain was doing, and why did God reject the sacrifice? Well, I think that the sacrifice was rejected on the basis of three reasons or points that we can talk about here for a minute. First of all, as I've alluded to, it involved no shedding of blood. Let me read from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life, the soul, that makes atonement. We're told in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission, no forgiveness of sin. Now, obviously, in Hebrews, the reference is to the blood of Christ, but also beyond that, to the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient in themselves to bring forgiveness, but they looked forward to that adequate sacrifice that would be in Jesus Christ. And we need, I think, our, personally, I think we need to look at history as God does. God looks down at the course of history, and he knows it all before it ever took place. And so whether Christ comes at the middle of, of human existence or wherever he comes is, is immaterial to the sufficiency of the blood sacrifice. The sacrifices that were made up to the time of Christ look forward to that sacrifice just as we look back to that sacrifice. And when we carry on the act of communion and we remember what Christ did, we're looking back at an event which took place. They were looking forward to an event which took place and it was equally uh, beneficial to them. And those who had faith in God and performed according to uh, his, his law in obedience to him, they had salvation just as we have. They didn't have the knowledge of Christ coming in the flesh that we have, but it was their faith. 
that brought about their redemption. Secondly, Cain's heart attitude was wrong. And very wrong. First of all, we discover his heart was filled with hypocrisy. I mean, he was making a sacrifice as if to say, I believe and I am obedient. It's sort of like the person who comes to church week after week, takes part in communion and smiles and shakes hands and, and makes like he or she is a really godly person, but if you knew the heart and if you knew the life that was lived at home, you would know that this person is far, far from God. Hypocrisy. Now, every one of us is to some measure hypocritical. Uh, in, in our flesh, we're never able to live up to all the standards of God and, and to be all that he wants us to be. But hopefully, we will move further and further from the grosser hypocrisy and, and seek more and more to be like Christ as we walk with him. But the actions of, of Cain here were grossly hypocritical. Let's turn to a passage that you probably are fairly familiar with. First chapter of Hebrews, very, very powerful statement relative to this very concept we're talking about. Did I say Hebrews? Isaiah. First chapter of Isaiah. Close. <laughs> well, same book. I mean, you know, Bible. <laughs> Isaiah 1.11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in, prayers, in, in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I mean, God is not pleased with hypocrisy. God does not want to see people carrying out the form of religion without the heart to match, without the faith that goes behind it. It's the faith that makes it real. It's the faith that makes it applicable. The actions mean nothing. And that's why we have throughout the world today largely a dead Christianity. We have huge denominations uh, in which form is carried out. Liturgy and sacrifice of one sort or another is carried out, but there's no meaning in it. And hearts are not changed. And hearts are not in communion with God. It's all form. And that's exactly what Cain was doing. It was all form with him. There was no heart relationship between Cain and God. And of course, this is, uh, Cain speaks powerful words to us as we look at his life. And we're going to be reading a few other passages uh, which make reference to Cain and the sin of Cain and how this becomes sort of the uh, archetype of, of human attitude, of the one who knows what is right but does not do it. So it is with Cain. He was sort of the model, arch, uh, model hypocrite, as if we needed one. A second part of this hard attitude was his pride. 
Now, of course, we can't relate to that, being humble people as we are. Paragons of humility, uh, and proud of it. <laughs> Why shouldn't the fruit of his labor be as good as the sacrifice that Abel would bring? After all, Cain worked as hard, maybe even harder, to produce what he had than Abel did. I mean, Cain had to plow the ground and plant the seed and cultivate and weed and do all these things, whereas all Abel had to do was make sure that nothing ate the lamb. You know, the, the mother sheep gave birth to the lamb, you know, and nursed the lamb. And, and, and so really, Abel's job was easier. So why shouldn't his labor be as valuable to God as Abel's? Pride. And then out of all of this, is born, I think, the third major reason why God rejected his sacrifice, and that all of this finally came to a head in outright rebellion. He led his pride, leading to the place of rejecting the word of God and to doing what is right in his own sight. There are a couple of passages in this scripture that as you go through, you'll note them, particularly in the book of Judges, where it says that in those days every man did what was right in his own sight. <coughs> Reminds me of the Middle Ages when you have this, what's called the sub-infudation of Europe. And the division of Europe into all these uh, petty little princedoms and duchies and kingdoms and counties. And, and each one seemed to be at war with the neighbor for the purposes mostly of pride and also, of course, of acquisition of wealth, plus the fact that young men were grown up with knowledge of nothing but hunting and warfare. They didn't know what else to do, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, they had to practice those things. And uh, warfare, of course, was, quote, fun, or at least for some. And uh, they did what was right in their own sight. There was no law. Lawlessness was across the land. And, and what Cain is doing is a lawless act. He's going by his own desires rather than by God's. This, of course, is the first step, I believe, in an attempt to reverse the creative order. God created man in his image. Now what is man trying to do? Create God in his image. And that's what's been going on ever since the beginning of time with Cain's attitude here. This rebellion opened the door to false religion. False religion is based in rebellion. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 1, sort of the key passage in understanding some of these things. Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, take that just for a moment here to depart from this. The creative world, the created world, testifies to the reality of God and his power and his glory. And yet there are thousands who go out there, quote, unquote, in the name of science, and look at this world and have no idea of God whatsoever. In fact, they, they purposely strip God out of it because they don't want to be responsible for their attitudes and actions to a, to a God who might call them into account. I mean, in many cases, it's a conscious decision. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but... But Julian Huxley, who for many years was the prince of all modern evolutionists, wrote in one of his books that he will not accept creation, uh, that is, he, he must accept evolution because he will not accept the alternative. He says, I absolutely reject the alternative, therefore I must accept evolution. That's the attitude of many. It's not really that science has proven it, it's just that they insist that that's true because they don't want God 
They don't want God to be a reality. It's archaic to think about God. It's medieval to think about God. For even though they knew about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Huh, do we ever see that today? Professors of wisdom. And I've had direct encounters with some of them. Professors of wisdom, but they're absolute fools. And their own private life proves it. and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. False religion based on man's rejection of God and elevating himself or one of the elements of creation to the place of divinity and of deity. By rejecting God's word, the truth of God's word, Cain and his descendants opened their minds to satanic influences and thereby conjured up this confusing myriad of gods and goddesses that have uh, infused the human race from that day to this. All the way from Baal and Ashtart, which we find over and over again in the Old Testament, of the Canaanites, to Zeus and Aphrodite and, 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 and the whole pantheon of gods and goddesses of the Greeks, to, to Jupiter and Venus of the Romans, to Vishnu and Brahman of the Hindu, to Allah, to Buddha. Some today will say, well, those are just different names for God. Hmm. Yes, the God of this world, but not the God of heaven, not the creator of heaven and earth. They're all human inventions with the help of demonic influence. You'll notice how similar so many of them are. If you study the evolution of Baal or Baal of the Old Testament and, and you, you find how he evolves through the cultures of the ancient world, you discover that so many societies, some of which didn't have a lot of close contact with one another, had a similar god to Baal. And almost always he had a consort similar to Ashtart, whatever her name might be. You look at Egyptian culture and Canaanite culture and, and uh, Sumerian culture and, of course, the Babylonian culture which came out of that. And, and, and you go over to the plateau of Iran or to the plateau of Anatolia and, and you find gods and goddesses which are so similar. And almost all of them are superhumans. They're, they're human beings, only they do everything in a bigger way, in a worse way. I mean, they can drink a whole lot more before they get drunk. And when they get drunk, boy, you can imagine what they do. They tear heaven apart. You know. and, and, you know, they can give birth out of their heads or, you know, all kinds of things happen. Ludicrous. What's very interesting is that many of the writers, particularly of the Greek and Roman world, thought it was stupid. You know. they, they themselves knew that the whole pantheon was ridiculous, just the invention of man's mind. There always have been those who have been very uh, practical and down to earth and have been unwilling to accept mythology. Hard attitude is revealed in actions, and we all know that very well. Abel had a right heart attitude, and his right heart attitude reflected in his obedient action. He did what God commanded him to do. He did it because he wanted to do it, because his heart was open to God, and he believed that it had to do with atonement. And therefore, God accepted his sacrifice. This is all in direct contrast to Cain. Now, I've put down there uh, four New Testament passages, just to look at real quickly, having to do with this picture. Matthew chapter 23, first of all, verse 35. Jesus, of course, uh, dealing with the 
scribes and the Pharisees and, and those that would be representative of the leadership, the religious leadership of those days, saying over and over again in this passage, woe to you blind guides, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, woe, woe, woe. And then as part of this, down in verse 35, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, which Jesus knew but isn't recorded in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah, dying in such a manner. Righteous blood, the blood of those that were in obedience to God, and Abel's blood being used as the, the uh, first example to all of those that would follow. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith Abel offered a, to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, his sacrifice, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. I mean, the writer of the Hebrews makes it clear what we're trying to see here in, in Genesis chapter 4, that Abel's offering was a better sacrifice because it was offered in faith. Cain's was not equal because it was not offered in faith or in obedience. And as a result, the truth of Abel's obedience in, in, in sacrifice still speaks to us today through the pages of the book of Hebrews. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Now, how much clearer does it have to be spelled out? For this is the message which we have heard from where? From the beginning, and what beginning is he talking about? Well, he goes on to use Cable, <laughs> yeah, Cable, a Cain and Abel as, uh, as the examples, meaning clear back to the beginning, the beginning, beginning. <laughs> Cain was of whom? The evil one. Hmm. And then finally, in the little letter of Jude, verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And of course, you remember Balaam, the only person we have clear record in the world of carrying on a conversation with a donkey. Well, you might say, well, I did that this morning. Well, uh, the animal donkey. And then, of course, Korah, who attempted to carry on a, literally a rebellion, uh, amongst Israel and was swallowed up as a result. Now, God's rejection of Cain's sacrifice did not produce in him repentance and humility. Instead, it produced anger and a dark, evil countenance. The word translated countenance, the, the Hebrew word panim, literally means face. And as you know, if you've read anything about Hebrew, anything that ends in I am is a plural. 
And, and so the face is written in plural because of the many expressions capable of coming out on the human face. The Bible, in the Bible, the face is often portrayed as the window into the soul. By looking at one's face, you can often tell what's really going on inside. And sometimes we see somebody and we say, oh, what's wrong today? Why do we say that? Because we see in the face something which indicates things are not normal. Well, maybe they are still normal, uh, that they're not good instead of normal. The face reveals the attitudes and the sentiments of, of the heart very often. Now, when, this, this doesn't always hold true. If you look through the pages of history, you'll discover every once in a while there's somebody such as the Duke of Wellington who was known as the Iron Duke because no matter what happened, his face un, was unmoved. You couldn't tell if he was happy or sad or about ready to, to demote you to buck, buck private or what because there was no emotion shown in the face of the Iron Duke. But generally speaking, most of us are, are uh, not that stoic, and our faces will reveal what's going on inside to some extent. Now, we know that God sees the heart. The Scripture tells us how clearly, so clearly, that God looks at the human heart. But in this particular case, God is referring to his face and says that his face, his, his countenance has fallen, become dark and angry in appearance, reve revealing this, this rebellion that was being generated inside. God came to Cain in love. God is displayed often in Scripture with the attribute of love being paramount at the time. God is love. That is, love is an attribute of God. And even when his wrath is displayed and his judgment comes, his love is unfailing. He came to Cain in love, and he came to him with instruction that would help him to repent and to turn from his evil ways, his way of rebellion, and to develop a right heart attitude. I mean, God loved Cain as much as he loved Abel. He didn't want to see Cain destroyed. He warned him, however, that sin was about to destroy him and that he must yield to God. That's a hard word, isn't it? Even when you're coming on to the freeway and you see that word yield, you think, I don't want to. <laughs> you know? It makes you feel somewhat inferior. Or it shouldn't, but I mean it could. I mean, they get to go full speed and I got to yield. Um, in, in England, where they have the roundabouts, they don't actually have a sign saying yield, <laughs> but you know you better or you're going to get creamed because they don't slow down coming around those circles. Um, he had to yield to God, and if he would do so, his sin would be forgiven, and God would give to him the necessary strength to resist the temptation that was coming his way and that had already been at his door. God uses a vivid word picture here, and he makes the gravity of the situation clear. We're not talking about some little optional point here. Cain was staring hell in the face. The Hebrew here alludes to the figure of a dangerous animal. Let, let's go back to the passage in Genesis. Verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. The picture is one of a dangerous predator, crouching and ready to spring. And Cain is walking into that trap. 
sin desires or longs to have him. Just as that hungry predator sits there and longs for that prey that it's ready to pounce upon, probably with its jowls drooling, you know. We, we get this, this picture, I think, here. But if he were to submit to God, act in faith and obedience, the predator will not be able to spring, and he will not be devoured. Cain could ward off the attack by obedience and by faith. If he rejected the word of God, however, it would spring and he would be destroyed. In James 1.15, we read this, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So Cain was staring this ravenous beast in the face and rejecting salvation from that drooling predator. Incredibly, it would seem incredible to us because God spelled it out to him. God said exactly what was happening and exactly how he could escape it. God just laid it out as clear to Cain as he could lay it out to a human being. And Cain purposely rejected God's offer. He turned his back on it as if to say, here, kitty, kitty, you know, jump on me and eat me alive. And he opened his heart, as later Judas would do, to the entrance of Satan, who would thus end, would result in murder. As far as we know, the very first murder to take place on planet Earth. Now, the first phrase of the eighth verse, I get back there here, Cain, and Cain told Abel his brother, it, it kind of seems to indicate that Cain went to Abel and said, this is what God has been saying to me. These are the things which have just transpired with me. I've had this encounter with God, and this is what he has said, and this is what I have done. If that is what he did, I, I, I'm pretty sure Abel would have counseled him to, to turn from his ways, to ask God for forgiveness, and to live in obedience and faith. Kyle and Delich, in their commentary on the book of Genesis, indicate that that's very unlikely. The Cain being the person that he was, was not likely to go tell Abel about a negative encounter with God because Abel was a godly man and Cain had already come to hate Abel because he stood in contrast to him. So unless he was bragging about the fact that uh, I've just told God where to get off, uh, kind of an attitude, uh, other than that, he wouldn't be very likely to, to tell Abel about that. Rather these commentators believe we should understand the first phrase of, of verse 8 as simply Cain's invitation to Abel to accompany him into the fields. So we might read it uh, as this, and so Cain went to Abel and said, let's go into the fields and have a talk together. <laughs> now knowing something of the character of Cain, as we have come to know it in, in just these few moments, we should expect that he probably gave a legitimate reason. He probably didn't say to Abel, come with me in the field, I'm going to kill you. Um, Abel was not so stupid as he'd say, oh, sure, well, let's, let's have a go at it. No, he, he probably said, look, I got something really important to tell you, I got something important to show you, or whatever, some very legitimate excuse for going out into the fields together. Now, some portray the uh, the encounter in the field is sort of an accidental encounter that may have came later. It, it doesn't seem to be that way. Even though it says, and it came about when they were in the field, the implication of the whole thing seems to be a flow here that uh, the one thing led directly to the other. 
I don't think Abel was aware of Cain's intentions. Certainly Abel was suspicious of his brother because of obviously this dark fallen countenance that he had. Uh, of, of, it would have shown in every aspect of his life, certainly his relationship with his mother and his father and his brother and his other siblings. But murder had never occurred before. And the idea that one human being would kill another human being apparently hadn't entered anybody's mind except Cain. And so Abel didn't seem to have any reason to be fearful of going out into the field with his brother Cain. Far from the sight of mother and father and other siblings, we're told that Cain rose up and slew Abel, his brother. Probably, I would suspect, he did it with words of accusation against God for being unfair, against Abel for being a self-righteous punk in his eyes, and saying that he was getting what he deserved. Cain allowed his anger to overwhelm him, and certainly he brutally murdered his brother. There probably weren't very many clean weapons around in those days. Probably beat him to death with a stick or a stone. He was driven by demonic forces, that he had opened the door for entrance and admitted into his life by his rebellion against God. And he was able thereby to commit a vicious act, bringing for the first time homicide into the human race. I'm sure this passage comes to your mind as it does mine as we think about this. In, it's not on your outline, but uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You know the story of Saul and his disobedience, the king of Israel. And Samuel's encounter with him after Saul had committed one of his several acts of disobedience. And Samuel said in verse 22... Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And you can take this passage and apply it to Cain. He had rejected the word of God. He had become insubordinate and rebellious. And here we're told that it is as great as the sin of witchcraft or divination and idolatry. And so by rebellion, he had opened his heart to the leading rebel of the universe, Satan himself and become allied to him, and proven to all for all time that he was of the seed of the serpent, not of the seed of the woman. I don't think that it's necessary, of course, for demons to inhabit somebody to commit every murder that's ever been committed. But I think in, this, in the light of this passage and other passages of Scripture, that he had allowed entrance of the evil one. And just as Judas, we're told, would be inhabited by Satan when he turned his back on Christ and he would go out and sell Christ for 30 pieces of silver that would lead to, his, to, the, to the death of Christ. I think it was equally so with Cain. And we have this horrendous account that's given to us here in the eighth chapter, uh, the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. Well, let's, let's read the next few verses. I don't think we'll go into them this morning, but let's read verses 9 through 15 as a prologue to our discussion. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? 
the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground and from the face, thy face. I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. It's kind of a frightening account, isn't it? And one thing that passage teaches us is, as we read in the, chap in the book of James, Lust leads to sin, and sin leads to death and destruction. The only hope to relieve that is, of course, the blood of Christ and the blood sacrifice. And that is what Cain has rejected, and thus there was no further redemption for his soul. And we read what happens, and he becomes an example, the archetype, if you will, of the person with no hope of the person who would live forever with his own little hell already on planet Earth. And he would go off to the land of wandering. And he would marry certainly one of his siblings. Must have been a blind sister. And from her, he would raise up a race of people who would really, it seems, from, from Genesis... Uh, be those who, who brought about the multiplication of pagan practices and idolatrous worship on planet Earth. And, of course, we'd create a civilization that would be so vile, and its influence, of course, even on the descendants of Seth, would be so vile that God would destroy all but eight people. And even then, it seems God destroyed all but eight, saved eight because of the basis of one man. Because the scripture only tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say that about his wife or his three sons or their wives. So we'll, we'll pursue that uh, next week.